name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone and thank you so much for joining us on this month's Talking Bat. I am so, so pleased to be joined today by Lara Torrent, uh, someone that I've known now for probably about four or five years. Uh, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, as we get into the interview. Lara, how are you doing today? Great. Um, I'm having, yeah, I'm very excited to be here, so <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> No, absolutely, absolutely. And look, when uh, you said you were agreeable to doing this, I was, uh, yeah, I was so excited because uh, we've we've come across each other on quite a few occasions now, and I've always enjoyed talking to you. It's always interesting, and you're just such an engaging person. So, uh, so thank you, thank you for uh, thank you for all of that. So are you looking forward to today's conversation? Or did you wake up this morning and think, oh no, why did I ever agree to do this? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm really looking forward for that. It's, it's going to be a nice way for me to really remember and kind of, yeah, put it all in, in a line, all what I've, what I've done in these past almost 10 years. So yeah, um, I'm happy to share all this with you and have a nice conversation. Excellent. Brief introduction for Lara. Uh, Lara's currently a PhD student. She works on African bat taxonomy, ecology and conservation, but she's focusing on species in Equatorial Guinea. We're going to talk quite a bit about that later on. She has also uh, collaborated with bat research teams in Catalonia, Poland, Mexico, Madagascar, Guinea-Bissau, I'm never sure how to pronounce that, and Equatorial Guinea. And she's also worked with CTFC and Natura Montfred studying forest and cave dwelling bats. But currently, uh, or most recently, in connection, I believe, with her PhD work, she also was a winner or the winner of the 2021 Kate Barlow Award. So, Lara, let's talk about the Kate Barlow Award. And you must have been pretty excited when you won that award. Is that what opened up the opportunity to do this PhD work? Or was that going to happen anyway? No, no, for sure. This, this was a, a key uh, element for me to, to actually start rolling with, with my PhD. So yeah. I, I, I remember that I applied because it was right in the pandemic. So they, they were asking for projects that uh, wouldn't require field work because they didn't want people to interact with bats just in case for precautions and safety for both sides. So I thought that would be the perfect moment for me to apply uh, for, for this uh, award because I was planning to study this scientific collection of bats from Equatorial Guinea that is uh, stored at Doñana Biological Station in Sevilla. Yeah. And yeah, I just said, okay, I'm going to try. Everybody was telling me you have very low chances. It's a very competitive uh, award. It's very difficult. But I say, okay, why not? I mean, where I'm home, I have time to write it down the proposal. So let's do it. And yeah, yeah I, I still, I'm still so amazed that I, I was selected. It's just a, a tremendous honor. And that I've already used, of course, this award to, to go to Sevilla and spend several weeks uh, navigating through this collection of um, specimens it was yeah. a dream come true so yeah great start for the PhD. <laughs> oh brilliant brilliant stuff I'm going to talk more about that uh, shortly I'm sure but first of all let's just establish uh, where you're from okay I believe you're a proud Catalonian is that correct? Yes of course. <laughs> and I remember a uh, well, the first time I met you, and in fact, the second time I met you, and possibly even the third time I met you, you were with your father. Uh, yes. How's he doing? Is he well? Oh, yes. Uh, he's very... So he's the uh, the boss of Natura Montfred. So he's very busy now with a crew of six people doing yeah. a lot of environmental education activities and some biodiversity assessments here in Catalonia. So, yeah, he's living a dream. 
Okay. Well, please say hello to him from from me. Okay. Uh, and uh, um, I had some uh, really good moments. Uh, the three of us on various things. I'm going to make an assumption here, and please correct me if I'm wrong. But with your dad's interest in natural history, were you always destined to follow a similar route, or were the two things unconnected? Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, growing up and getting into wildlife and stuff? Yeah. For sure. Uh, I'm sure that my father has put a big influence on, on, on this. So my father is a mycologist. He studies uh, mushrooms and fungi, and he's done that uh, as, well, not professionally, but uh, he's kind of an expert now because we, he's done that for more than 30 years with a team of colleagues here in Catalonia. So since I've been a child, we every weekend we used to go to the mountain to look for, for mushrooms, but especially the tiny ones, not the, the ones that you would pick up yeah. Then cook. No, my, my father and his colleagues were more into the tiny ones, discreet colors, very cryptic, and they would take photos, take samples, and they check them on the um, microscope to ID the, the species. And yeah, I, I guess it did give me a lot of influence because I spent with my sister a lot of time wandering around in, in the woods. Plus, we live in a small village, like 2,000 people. So we, we had the forest very close by as well. We went to school ourselves. And in the in the yard of my school, we used to find a lot of animals like frogs, snails, even a bat, I think probably was a pipistrelle. And I pick up everything and I used to bring it back home. And then my mom asked, what do you, what do we do with all this? I remember having a frog jumping in the in the fridge of my kitchen once. So yes, I guess it gave me a lot of influence and I, I kind of knew that I would like to do something related with nature. Just wow. didn't know what exactly. Wow, wow. <laughs> uh, and so I would imagine, you, well, as you say, you've grown up uh, with this in the background, but it's quite a big jump to go from fungi to bats. Yeah, so explain that jump a lot bit or it's probably a lot of stepping stones explain that to us a little bit more so when i started uh, my bachelor i i had a lot of interest on ornithology since there are a lot of uh, ornithologists here in catalonia that they give you access to go with them when they do these ringing sessions and i had a friend in in my village that he did that a lot so i i was learning a lot how to id the species of the bird how to remove them from the nest and the molting and so and i I really enjoy and I thought, okay, this is gonna be my path. But then I'm my third year of my bachelor degree. So one of my teachers, Jordi, he said, hey, you need to do this uh, field um, practices in summer, no? Uh, for, the, for the university. Do you wanna come with me and my colleague that we're gonna start the project on bats? And I said, that's okay. I've never done anything with bats. I said, sure, why not? Yeah. So the first night that we went for field work, we went to a cave that is like five minutes away from my hometown. Uh, and I was surprised because we started setting the nets and a lot of the species, we got like six or seven species in that cave that I used wow. to go with my parents when I was a kid as well. And we spent the whole summer. So catching bats in, in many cave systems, nearby these hydroelectric, uh, hydroelectric plants, uh, power plants here in Catalonia. And I was amazed. I mean, I was like so many different bat species that I had no idea. And I really liked it. So I was yeah. like, okay, maybe I could do something with bats. But this kind of ended here. And then I went to Poland for this uh, Erasmus exchange. Yeah. And there I met uh, Tomasz Kogurewicz. He was okay. one of my teachers. Yes. So since I was the only uh, Erasmus student at his course, uh, he couldn't make the lectures all in English. He couldn't oblige the, the, the rest of the students to, to do the lecture in English. So I was just there sitting, listening to Tomek, talking in Polish, putting PowerPoint slides and talking about different taxa and fauna. And at some point, he put a slide of, a, I believe it was um, a, a plecotus bat, a, I think it was a brown long ear bat. Okay. And he spent quite a long time talking. Of course, I didn't understand anything, but it was like, hmm, 
what is he talking about? So after the lecture, I went to him and I said, hi, uh, I'm interested in that. And I noticed that you spend a lot of time talking about that. So could you tell me if you do some, I don't know, maybe a project or field work that I, maybe I could join you? And I, I remember that Tomek at the first moment, he was like, okay, you are interested? I mean, do you want to do something with that? And I said, yes. And he told me about these um, winter censuses that they have been doing from since the 90s okay. and that they would probably go again uh, this winter season uh, from October until April or so on. And I could notice that my eyes were like starting to shine. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, could I join you at least once? That would be amazing. I would love to join you. And then I was like, okay I'm, I'm gonna ask my colleagues and i'll come back to you and and see if we can work through that and i'm like yes please yeah so yeah he said a few days after that i could join them so i was myself with a crew of polish people going for a one weekend per month to yeah. and we did this winter census of a couple of sections and there i kind of reaffirmed that like yes wow. i want to work with that Yes, that was kind of the idea. And Tomek, on top of that, said, why don't you do your final project for the bachelors and bats? Since we've been collecting data and we have data from a couple of years before that, you could use it. And Jordi, my supervisor in Catalonia, was like, sure, sure, why not? So yeah, I extend my time in Poland for a second semester. And yeah, I worked side by side with, with Tomek and we write down my, my bachelor's project. And that was, yeah, I, I knew at that point that I'm gonna, I don't know why, but I'm gonna continue studying this, this group of animals. I, I kind of, yeah, reassure it that that's a point. <laughs> wow, wow, yeah. And have you ever, I mean, so that's kind of the research side and we'll talk a little bit more about the research uh, shortly. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. Have you ever worked professionally in the bat world for consultancies or anything like that? Or has it always been mm-hmm. research, voluntary type stuff you've done? I like you understand in the UK because we don't have that much opportunities here in Catalonia or Spain. But uh, since I met Jordi and his team, he hired me for a couple of summer seasons. So first as a field technician. And then I have them deploying a lot of bat detectors for a European life project. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I did a lot of acoustic analysis along these years. And then when I was working with my father in this company that it's called Natura Montfred, so we did several yeah, kind of small projects on, on bat assessment in urban areas uh, with bat activity, kind of relating it with mosquito presence assessment and how we could and and change the bats living in the urban areas so also we did a lot of bat boxing uh, deployments in some areas of catalonia in urban areas as well as in uh, forest and riverine uh, habitats and then we uh, monitor these bat boxes as well so not consultancy per se but yeah i've been doing some let's yeah bad work yeah. Uh, being paid for that at, uh, along this year, so excellent, I've excellent been stuff. Lucky enough for that. Yeah. So you've been doing, I suppose, from your first interest in bats till now. Is that about ten years? Is yes. that yeah, yeah? And goodness, you have crammed a lot into that ten years. I mean, you you have done stuff. I mean, I've been doing bats almost thirty years. Okay, and. You've done way more than I have in so many different respects. You've just been, uh, you know, you've really, you know, you've really done hugely well, I think, bearing in mind all of the things that you've been involved with. But there's a couple of things I just wanted to mention early on. Uh, First of all, I mean, we had met each other before Askham in 2018. Uh, You'd been across to one of our social calls conferences, I think. And I remember there was a lovely evening when uh, 
we were out for dinner or we invited uh, the likes of John Russ and a whole lot of other people uh, out for dinner one evening and uh, you and your dad joined us that evening and I just remember us all sitting around the table and so that was a lovely evening and I think it was during that social calls conference uh, when we were talking we then discovered we were both going to be at this event that Lifeguard was organising in Norway in Askham in 2018. So that was a wonderful coincidence. And yes. here's the picture at the end of the event here. I'm looking quite smug here at the front. I wish I'd pulled a different face, but we've got Life there. We've got Inga from Copenhagen. Goodness, we've got Chris Corbin. Yes. We've got uh, yourself over there in the back. Uh, you know, and I won't mention everybody's names, but, uh, you know, the, these, you know, it was a wonderful event. And and we spent a couple of nights uh, pretty much with our bat detectors, just talking, talking about bats and talking rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah, always talking rubbish if I'm involved, that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so that was a lovely event. Um, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to thank you for, okay, um, because probably about oh, a, maybe a couple of years ago now, uh, I asked if you would be happy to contribute some of your amazing photographs for our second edition of the Social Calls uh, book here. And I just want to say thank you very much for that. Okay, you give us a selection of uh, amazing pictures that enabled us to freshen that book up uh, in that respect, as well as the other ways in which we, um, you know, made changes in the second edition. So thanks for that. And that's yeah. your picture of, a, I think it's a Bechstein's, I think, yeah. on the front cover. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that is that quite nice? I mean, maybe you have to say it is. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, is it quite nice to see one of your pictures? Yes. like that yeah no for me it's a, i mean it's another privilege to have all the photos that i that i work on to have them being used for some other purposes that only just to show them in on instagram and so or some powerpoint presentations I'm, I'm i'm very happy to to be able to use them for something else definitely that that's why i'm working hard on taking these photos and having all this photography equipment <laughs> taking yeah. carrying it around with me everywhere i go so for sure yeah that, well that's the purpose well, massive thank you. A massive thank you for that. Okay. And, uh, you know, so it's just, it's just been great, uh, you know, having you involved in that project. And yeah. it's, and it's even nicer because you were at the social cause conference and we knew each other and, and we like to work collaboratively in our projects and uh, involve people that we know and, and stuff like this. So sure. it's really nice to have, have done that. Uh, Wonderful. Right, let's talk a little bit about your uh, research. Yeah, this paper here was this connected to your your bachelor's, or was this separate? This this work you did here. This is your master's. master's. Sorry, your master's. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Um, no, because that would have been the first time that you were the lead author on yes. a paper. I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, one of my PhD supervisors was also uh, my master's supervisor and a great friend of mine is Adria Lopez-Bauxelles. Yeah. And he did uh, his PhD on the uh, on the Amazon rainforest. Yeah. And I believe three years almost living in a row in, in the middle of the forest, uh, collecting a lot of data for his PhD. So when, when I started my master's, he suggested me that I could, we could work with some of his data and I could do a, a master's project uh, with acoustics that they have been uh, collecting in, in the past three years that he lived in, in the Amazon. Yeah. And of course, for me, that was, it wasn't like the first time that I got in contact with uh, acoustics and apart from the neotropics, but it was a really nice experience because everything was new. So they had to, they had this, um, first draft of the identification acoustic key for, for the yeah. bat for the Central Africa, for Central Amazon. Yeah. And I had to help him um, figure out the species and double check that the key was actually working. So when I was going through all those 
thousands of recordings, see if it works, will really help me uh, identify the species or the phonic groups. And I analyzed, I don't remember how many, hundreds of thousands of okay. <laughs> hours yeah. of recordings. Yeah. But it was really nice because we were comparing uh, bat activity uh, inside the forest and over temporary lakes. Okay. So because we are now in a context of climate change and we know that, yeah, the rainfall is going to be changing everywhere. So we're expecting that in the even in the tropics, the, 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 the amount of rainy seasons might be decreasing or be lower intensity. So we assume that that somehow for sure bat would be linked with these temporary legs because they, they need it for foraging, for drinking. And it was really nice because we, we saw that with our data. So clearly insectivorous species were very uh, linked to these temporary legs, and especially during the driest month of the year. And as I'm always very um, uh, conservation biased and I try to find um, yeah, potential outputs that could help conservation, in a more practical way, we clearly see that the uh, we need somehow to ensure that we protect these temporary legs for, for bad conservation, even in the tropics, because they, they are linked to yeah. these temporary ponds. So for sure, it, it was really nice experience. Even though I wasn't physically in the neotropics, it was really nice. I learned a lot. Yeah, no, amazing, amazing piece of work. Uh, and I, I did read over it uh, briefly, um, to be fair. Um, and you know, look as as you know, I'm quite into my bat acoustics, but but this sort of project that this would terrify me, right? Because what? you you really are working in an area and with a, a group of uh, mammals where there hasn't really been that much written about them. It's not like you can pick up a field guide <laughs> that's of any substance and go immediately, yes, I know what this is or what this might be. You are pretty much starting from scratch, are you? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, but Adrián and, and his colleague Ricardo, they did an amazing job uh, creating this first uh, acoustic uh, guide. And nowadays yeah. it's being very used and they continue to update it as, as they collect more acoustic recordings from other people and that the taxonomy of some groups is being understood uh, better, so it, I think it's a very nice piece of work that nowadays is, is very reliable. And yeah, we yeah. should scope for that in in other parts of the of the tropics. And of course, it's not easy because as as we've discussed in some of our encounters, the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know that much. Yeah, so you need yeah. to keep a balance <laughs> with how much you you can say this is definitely this way. This is for sure this species because I've done it this way, and even though it's been recorded in these conditions. Yeah. Species, so you need to find a it's, balance. It's a balance, absolutely. It's a balance. Yeah. And and I do love that expression. The more you know, the the more you realize you don't know that much. And and I didn't come up with that, by the way. I I heard that the very first time from uh, somebody nothing to do with the bat world, uh, a management guru in the USA uh used to say something to this effect quite regularly. Um, and it was something that I latched onto well, when I was still working in the insurance sector, you know, about knowledge and you think you know everything, but but you only know what you know. <laughs> so it's uh, exactly, yeah. and I think it's good. It's wise to realize that you might not know everything, and that it's a constant change. Yeah. You need to update yourself somehow. No? Yeah, well, we're all learning, and especially with, with especially with bats. Now, talking about learning and uh, how much we think we know about uh, bats, there's this relatively small country in uh, Western Africa called Equatorial Guinea, and this is where your PhD research uh, relates to. Where I think I'm right in seeing it was reasonably documented there were so many species of bats there. But your research, uh, along with work you're doing with a whole lot of other people that will be associated with what you're involved with, I'm sure, is kind of demonstrating there's a lot more going on there than what would have 
initially been considered. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? Yeah. Sure. So, well, in, in reality, there is not that much known about bats from Equatorial Guinea. Here's the kind of the, the core of the whole situation. So when I visited the country for the first time in 2018, I was invited by a colleague of mine to join them for like a, a couple of weeks of exploratory surveys. We were checking for, for literature and the most recent publications specifically focused on bats were from the 90s, from okay. one of my current supervisors, Javier Juste. And he focused uh, his PhD uh, research on the insular bats. So he was working on the Guinean Gulf uh, Islands, so Sao Tome, Principe, Anobon, and Bioko. And they, they find, I think, yeah, maybe I, I believe 30 species. But since my colleague and I were working on the mainland, we, we look for information specifically for, for the mainland region. And there was nothing recent. So the most recent paper was from the 70s, from a researcher that he did a couple of quick surveys in the country and he described like 22 species. That was okay. all. Nothing else. So it was super out of the out of date, and so, so everything that we've done from there till now, I believe it's the most well, it's the most updated knowledge that we have for for the bat for this country in Central Africa. So it's a work in progress, constantly challenging to figure out what is what, and every yeah every season we find something new. Okay. <laughs> It's uh, okay. it's very mod it's very exciting, but at the same time, since now I'm doing the PhD and you need to yeah, you have the scientific research mentality to have yeah. like you know um working planning and sample size and blah 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 comparity between seasons. It's it's a constant challenge because you realize that you cannot do that there. It's not yeah. that not that easy. Yeah. So how, how many species are you up to now? Uh, do you do you know how many species yes. you've currently engaged with there now? Now we have 54 so far described. 54. So that's that's well beyond double what the literature would have uh, suggested. Um, and this is interesting. For the original literature that described the 22 species, mm -hmm. Have you re-engaged with all 22 of those species or have you found any of the original species described were uh, hard to come across? Any thoughts on that? Huh, um, good question. So I think I don't remember by heart all the species that Clyde John described in the 70s, but I believe we found all of them now. Okay. Okay. Most of them were fruit bat, fruitivorous species, which are quite easy to catch or at least see. Yeah. The tricky ones are the molossus bats because, well, everywhere in the world they, they fly very high. They are they barely go down, so yeah. it's really hard to catch them in the nets unless you know the roost. Yeah. But with my supervisor Javier, in this past season, we we set some mist nets in the middle of a very big uh, river that we yeah. had to go all the way with the water up to the chest to remove the bats in the net. And wow. then we got the, the molossus bats because of course they need to drink at some point. So they, they went down and I think in, in that moment is when we got the couple of species that Clyde Jones described for the molossus uh, group. So okay. yeah, I think we have found all the ones that were described in the, um, in the 70s, plus some more that we don't know exactly what the hell they are. So, <laughs> this is, uh, okay, and okay, right. So you've okay. So you've talked about something there. I'm going to ask a typical kind of tourist question. You're in a river, right, in Central Africa, up to your chest in water. Yes. I'm thinking, is this an area where you're likely to have things like uh, crocodiles or hip or hippos or anything like that? Yes, crocodiles I have ne we've never seen, but I know that in the north uh, there is this natural reserve that it's called Rio Campo. Yeah, it's in border with uh, Cameroon already. There, okay. they are. They have hippos. So we haven't been there yet. We're hoping we're planning to go in January for that region. So yeah, I might have a chance to see hippos. <laughs> 
but not so far. We haven't found them in the center part or in the eastern part where we've been working. Are you not? Well, I'm just maybe I'm just a total boost, all right. And I've I've been to Africa what five six times now. I've never done bat research in Africa. I've always just gone as a tourist. But and there's a lot of other things there that could potentially harm you as well. Okay, uh, just generally, right? But when you're wading through water, right? Yeah. Is there not even just a little bit of you thinking, what if there's a crocodile here? Does that cross your mind at all? Honestly, the crocodile thing, it's never crossed my mind. And I have all these thoughts the yeah. day before I'm getting into the plane. But once we are there, we get into all those, you know, logistics, plannings, setting the nets, talking with the local chief, organizing the meat netting, when we're going to set everything. I cannot forget about all these potential hazards. I mean, it's not like I'm going recklessly around, but it kind of goes in a second part of my brain, like, okay, we have it there just in case in emergency, but but I've never really thought of about this when we get into the water. Like I remember that uh, one of the places that we look for bats is this culvert that you find on the ropes. Okay. Like there's this group of neat that is bats. They 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 look like uh long eared uh bats uh, okay. in ropes, so like in a parallel, and they yeah. like to roost in these uh, culverts. So what we do is we put a meat net on one side yeah. and then there is the person waiting for them. And then yeah. on the other side, someone goes with a big branch and he gets into the culvert to try to scare them so that they go at the end of the of the opposite side and they get caught in the net. Yeah. And, we, and in many of these places, they are floated. So I remember that I just kind of didn't thought about that. And I just removed the cloth. We put, uh, yeah, the, the whatever, some short trousers and we get into the water it was quite smelly that time and with the branch <laughs> i was only focused on avoiding some wasps because there was a a, a wasp nest uh, at yeah. the entrance of the of the covert and just focus on trying to catch this bat because they're really hard to catch otherwise in the nest okay in the of the forest so yeah i was just worried about the wasp not really thinking of what could be in that water because yeah we've just seen small fish and I think that's all we've seen. I mean, we, you could have, yeah, maybe some leeches or some parasites. I think that's the thing that worries me the most, the, the, the yeah. parasites, the thing okay. that can get under your skin. This is yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, th I think, I think, uh, no, I'd love to do stuff like this, but I think I would be on the bank of the river in a supervisory role. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, sometimes it's very, very hard. Hey, hey, Lara, you go in the water. I'll, I'll just stay here with the notebook and the pen, and, <laughs> and you take the bats back. You take the bats back to where I am. Yeah. <laughs> Comfort position. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good yeah. one. And, and meanwhile, I'll worry about leopards and lions and <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen elephants now that you mentioned them, but we've okay. seen the, the tracks, like fresh tracks of them. You can see the... Okay. The food and everything, the mess around that they make in the middle of the forest. I was like, shit, this, this yeah. is scary. I mean, when we are camping in the middle of the forest with the hammocks, yeah. and then you are just there kind of like very vulnerable in the middle of the forest, it's like, hmm, yeah, they could appear at some moment just randomly because they might be curious of our smells. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Sound, it sounds fascinating, sounds interesting. And uh, yeah, and no, good on you. I, I love I love your approach. <laughs> I totally love your approach. Uh, no, it's good good stuff. Um, what what does the future hold? So, how how much longer do you think you'll be working on the PhD? And where do you see your journey going beyond that? Do you think it will stay in research, academia, mm -hmm. or do you see yourself taking a totally different route? What, what do you think? Oh, that's that's a tough question, you know, for, for our generation, the uncertainty that we need to deal with every year, like what's going to happen next year? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I know for sure that I have until 2025 to work on my PhD because that's the time that I have this, the, my Portuguese scholarship that is covering me. And I would really like to continue in the academia. I know it's a hard path. I know it's a very competitive path, but I'm I'm enjoying it, doing it. So, and I know it's a it's kind of feasible. 
especially if I'm working in tropical areas where there's so much that can be done and there's so much potential with uh, our local colleagues to get engaged and to apply for grants. So hopefully a postdoc would be ideal. But since I'm also very interested in capacity building and training and working with locals side by side, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. So I, maybe I didn't mention, but Equatorial Guinea is the only Spanish-speaking country in Africa. Okay, so I, didn't, I didn't know that. Okay, so that... for me. Okay. I can, I can yeah. easily communicate with anyone. Okay. And at the same time, I can kind of understand a bit more the reality. So they they have interest in working, not only in bats, in biodiversity in general, but they have a big lack of tools. They don't have access to knowledge in Spanish. They don't have um, access to high levels of education. So I, I understand the reality and I empathize a lot with my colleagues, especially Esther. She is, she's my side-by-side uh, -side partner there. She and I are working very well. We get along very well. We have the same age. And even though we have completely different realities, with yeah. that and with this project, we are kind of um, kind of clicking and joining together very well. And we've been discussing a lot. Yeah, she she's here in, in this picture. This is her here, yes. yes. Okay. I, I, and, I thought it might have been. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I, I, I really see that there's a lot of potential to, to do work in, in Africa. But as we've been discussing with many other people, it, it needs a long-term investment. So you cannot just go there and say like, okay, I go there, I do a workshop on bats for a couple of days, and then I go home. It's not enough for them. They need a long-term kind of um, support. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to work on with her, like help her work on writing down an application and fund her own projects and empower her and other people that we work with. So this is another part of, what I'm discovering working in Central Africa that I want to explore more. So maybe, okay. yeah, an organization that I can work with in the future that focus more on conservation and on capacity building. That's something that I would love to do too. I, I like it and I really like being in the field with people. Like yeah. Yeah. colonializing uh, white people approach going from the North and just, yeah, delivering some money and having people helping you with the logistics and that's all no I really like getting them involved because yeah I put my in my mouth let's do conservation in Central Africa let's help bats blah 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 but I'm not going to be there all the time I'm here now so we need to really engage with the, the local people to do this and and I, I see that the best way is invest on them and they really want to do it so um, wow. yeah, I think I see myself in that direction as well either yeah. with academia support or with another path. I mean, so far I've managed to navigate through all this uncertainty. And so I, I think I'm fine. I'm going to find a way to, to continue doing it. I, I believe so. Right. So, okay. So what I want to pull out of there, what you've just been talking about. First of all, for somebody in your part of uh, the world, okay, Catalonia, what are the logistics for you traveling to Equatorial Guinea? Uh, can you get direct flights from Barcelona or yeah. wherever there is? Mm, so not directly, directly, but it, now it's quite easy. So we go from Barcelona or Madrid to, I believe we stop in uh, Casablanca. Okay. And in Marrakech. Yeah. And then from there, we have a direct flight to the capital of Equatorial Guinea, which is in Bioko Island, this big island that you see very close to Douala. Uh, up here? No. The top one. Do you see this? This one. Island? Yes. So here, this is Bioko. This is the biggest island from Equatorial Guinea, and the capital is there, Malabo. So we have this flight that only okay. stops in Casablanca. Okay. And it's quite straightforward. Of course, then we need. For, uh, for us, it's now, now very common and we kind of get used to then flying with an internal flight to Bata, which okay. is the biggest city in the coastline. Yes. Okay. So it's okay. a long journey, but now it's quite easy. Okay. If we include that we need to go to Madrid, to the Equatorial Guinea Embassy in person with the okay. passport to get the visa, with a lot of documentation and yeah. I guess that after all these years, now I'm more confident that I managed to navigate through all this. Okay. And yeah. 
And is it quite a is it quite a stable country uh, in terms of government and stuff like that? Um, it, yes, yeah. yes, they've been having the same president and the same political party since the eighties, I believe. Okay. So I think nowadays uh, he's the yeah the long the longest term time president in whole Africa that okay. stay in in the power. I think now in November or December they have elections again. Okay. And yeah, the, his party is the strongest one. It gets all the votes, and a lot of people um, is a follower for for him. Yeah, he's the second president they have uh, since they got um, independence in the sixties from Spain. Okay. Okay. And in terms of things like road networks and uh, you know basic um, stuff like. Uh, you know, hotels, yeah. accommodation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, transport links within the country itself. Is it is it quite well developed? Or I mean, I've I've been to, you know, I've, as I say, I've been to quite a few African countries. I've never been to that part of Africa, but I've been uh, further south than there, Namibia, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I was I was very impressed with Namibia and how. And how organised they were as you know a country with their uh, technology and roads and uh, stuff like that. I'm I'm trying to imagine if Equatorial Guinea is kind of there. Does it have a big tourist? Does it have a big tourist industry? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. They don't like tourist people. Well, I would say that they are not interested. They they don't really need it. It's a very small country with very low. Population is like 1.2 million inhabitants. Okay. okay. And it, I think it was at the end of the 90s that they found these uh, oil uh, resources in the coastline of Equatorial okay. Guinea. So they have a GDP very high nowadays, thanks to they've been exploiting these resources for yeah almost three decades. And I think most of the wealth from the country comes from this. Okay. And of course, it's almost uh, all the country, uh, especially the mainland part, it's uh, low-lying rainforest. So they've been also extracting wood and other resources uh, nowadays from the Chinese government. So they have low population, they have all this wealth, and they've been developing a lot in the past yeah, three decades. So they have this big road that you can actually see in this Google map, this yellow road in the north part that crosses yes. the entire region. Okay, yeah. It takes you like four hours to cross the, the whole region. It's not that far away. I mean, this is a big highway. Okay. And this is very well developed. And then you cannot see it here, but right in the center where you have the O from Equatorial, they have yeah. been building the future new capital. Of Equatorial Guinea. Okay. So there was this chunk of forest. They clear cut everything. They made this big road, and this is where the new capital of Equatorial Guinea is gonna uh, be. And they have wow. been developing uh, uh, an urban system with big uh, skyscrapers, and they, there is a big uh, five-star hotel with the golf yards, and these big villas, and this big hotel with several restaurants and a piano. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. And a pool in the road, and then there is another pool. Uh, it's and they have teams moving around there. It's African style. I always call it. It's a big contrast. So you have the tiny village that it's called Oyala, yeah. the original village, where right. the highway and the asphalt road finish right at the beginning of the village. Yeah. And then you have these African roads that have all these holes that your car goes bumping around, <laughs> and it's all dirt and. Yeah, with their all um, their traditional uh, buildings, so it's very contrast. So yeah, yeah, they've been spending a lot of money on developing some areas and doing these big highways that help us a lot to move around. Because when my supervisor Javier was moving around in the country in the eighties and the nineties, they had a lot of difficulties. It took okay. several okay. days to move from one part to the other one. So now. This is easier for us, but at the same time, it is easier for hunters and for the logging companies to open more trails and to get access to the most um, pristine areas of the country. So this is a big threat for, for bats and for all fauna. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's say there is a lot of development, but it's not well uh, distributed. 
So there's a lot of poverty and there's no high education. The health system is very poor as well. Uh, so this is something that despite having yeah low population, it's not well worked. But for yeah. us, it helps a lot with the logistics because there is this, our main partner in Equatorial Guinea is um, is in charge of the management of the protected areas and the biodiversity. And they have some resources, so they have some trucks. They have all these credentials that help us move around because even though you have these highways, yeah, there is no one in this, right. of course. Not everybody has the kind of four cars. Okay, so, yes. Plus, there are these military controls. So in oh. the middle of a highway, you're going to see a, a tiny house. Yeah. And then you have this big, um, um, I don't know how it's called this, um, well, metal structures and these uh, bamboos that far, uh, stop the way. So you cannot okay. cross it. You need to stop. Okay. And then suddenly, a military person comes with their guns. Yeah. They approach to you and they start checking who are you. They ask you for credentials. They ask you for passport. So you need to do this several times. Okay. Along okay. the way, you move around. So this is why it's so important that we work side by side. Well, it's another reason why it's important to work with locals. Yeah, yeah. It makes it easier because, I mean, yeah. we're going in an official mission, let's call it. So it's not like a bunch of white people in the, in the holidays. I mean, they are not used to holidays. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, tourists. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, there's always uh, constant challenges in this in this sense, and and I guess that's the reason why they don't have tourists as well because they have all this wealth coming from the the natural resources that they have been exporting in these past three decades, and they, they don't really need the tourists. It's yeah. not there is no hotel. Well, a few hotels in Malabo and a few hotels in Bata in the two big cities, either in the island and in the mainland, but. When you go inland, there's nothing else. There's nothing. No, yeah. There's no booking. There's nothing that you can. All <laughs> <laughs> very rural. Yeah. No, it sounds fascinating, and, and and that's just really that's been quite interesting just to get your perspective uh, on, on Equatorial Guinea there because it, it's it's that a country that I've that I know anything about and I suspect uh, uh, not many people in. Uh, the British Isles, anyway, uh, would know that much about Equatorial Guinea. Um, no, I didn't know anything before yeah. going there for the first time either. So. Yeah. Wow, wow. Right, I think that is taking us almost to the end. Is, is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't mentioned? Um, you know, if... Mm. I'm I yeah no I'm I'm really happy that I've been able to spend these past ten years doing what I love the most and I I hope that some people that watch this uh this video might also be encouraged to pursue their their dreams or their dream jobs let's let's yeah. call it and I know that it's not easy but if 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 you have enthusiasm and passion I think it it kind of helps you navigate through all this uncertainty and you kind of end up finding a path and chatting with people, volunteering as much as you can with your, of course, your possibilities. You never know who is going to end up inviting to your conversation like yeah. it's happening now. So this is, this is something that I also enjoy, just start chatting with people, knowing what people does. And I believe this also helped me to be what I am here now yeah. and help me become the person that I am now to be more confident and to yeah to have ideas of what I want to do in, in this near future despite all so um yeah uh, what what do you do when you are not uh, doing bat work so do you have any other interests or hobbies outside of the world of nature mm -hmm. uh, I like, yeah, I, I really enjoy cycling. I, I do okay. a lot of cycling with my partner. I like photography, not only uh, about that. I like macro photography, landscape photography as well. This is these are things that I enjoy. I like reading, even though lately I'm not doing it that much because yeah, the, the academian world puts you on those paper path. But yeah. I try to find some time just to sit in my sofa and, and just read other kind of uh, books and yeah. Will, so what kind, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what kind of books do you read? Is it fiction, non-fiction? Uh, yeah. uh, I, I like non I like fiction, honestly. Okay. Yeah, a lot of yeah, adventure 
uh, books, uh, paranormal mo uh, books as well. Uh, I like yeah. that, that kind of uh, literature as well. Wow, wow. And what's a long cycle for you? I mean, are you, uh, is it like racing bikes or mountain bikes? What, what's what's I, a typical yeah. cycle like? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do gravel cycling, so these uh, gravel uh, kind of bikes, and then yeah. mountain bikes I, I like doing too. So okay. cross country, a bit of a mixture, so a bit of yeah, bumpy uh, yeah. roads, more technical, plus doing kilometers. So here in Catalonia, we have well-connected uh bike friendly path that you can uh, yeah. do and get from the coast to the pyrenees uh, and it's really nice uh, for, for doing bike biking as well with you you have all your stuff with yourself with the tent and everything and you do yeah some days of uh, cycling that's really nice and the weather is perfect and <laughs> the yeah. climate change is it's putting it uh, even easier and nicer so yeah uh, no, it sounds fascinating. No, it sounds sounds absolutely lovely, idyllic, um, <laughs> brilliant. Right. So, what we tend to do at the end of these sessions, Lara, is uh, I tend to say thank you and say goodbye. And but we like for the last word to come from the person we're interviewing. So that would be you in this case. So after I say thank you and goodbye to our audience, uh, if you could just say you know, thank you, goodbye, whatever to the audience. And at that point, we'll stop the recording. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. sure sounds good. Right, so everyone, uh, that is, was Laura Torrent from Catalonia. What an uh, inspiring uh, conversation, if you've been listening to it, uh, just showing what is possible and how life with its many twists and turns can lead you heading off in a certain direction and Lara obviously is still very much on her journey and looking at what she's done over the last 10 years it's going to be quite amazing to see 10 years from now what she achieves going forward so I hope you've enjoyed listening to, to Lara talk about uh, her experiences and her work and I just want to say uh, once again, uh, thank you to Lara for her time today. As is the tradition with these talking about interviews, I'll ask Lara, Lara to have the last word and say goodbye. And we'll end the recording there. Lara, over to you. Well, thank, thank you very much for having me here, Neil. This has been really lovely. And yeah, I hope you've enjoyed <laughs> A tiny bit of all my adventures with bats and yeah looking forward to catch up with some of you that we might know from all these years in the bat world so yeah thank you very much see you soon we hope you enjoyed this talking bat interview which is an edited audio only version of the original video session the full version including video is available via betability club our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to batability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.